You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Today's reading is from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Great. Let's, let's pray before we come to God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that uh, this day you would uh, work in our hearts by the power of your spirit uh, to remind us of what our mission is in this, your world. Uh, In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, I do wonder uh, how you would answer the question, what is the mission of the church? What is the mission of the church? Maybe you've never thought about that question. Maybe you think it's a stupid question. I don't know. But why exactly is it that the church exists? What's the mission of the church? Why is it that Christ leaves us in the world? Christ sends us into the world. What is the mission of the church? There might be a few different answers to that question, but I think Christ gives the central answer to that question in in this last section of Matthew's Gospel. And you can see, if you've got the welcome card open, there's an outline of my sermon there. Uh, You can see that uh, I've grouped this passage under what I'd call the five P's of mission. Uh, The people of mission, the platform of mission, the purpose of mission, the promise of mission, and lastly, the power of mission. So it'd be great if you could have these uh, few verses open, uh, either on the welcome card or in your own Bible. Uh, First, we're going to look at what I've called the people of mission. Uh, This is in verses 16 and 17. So take a look there uh, from verse 16. Uh, Matthew says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So Matthew tragically points out that now there's actually only 11 disciples. Why? Well, because we've read in the previous chapters, Judas has has tragically betrayed Jesus, and at the start of Matthew 27, tragically took his own life. A horrible sequence of events. So there's now only 11 disciples coming to meet Jesus, and Matthew tells us that they're going to meet Jesus on a mountain. And that's quite significant because uh, things of immense spiritual significance in Matthew's gospel tend to happen on mountains. You can flick back through the gospel later on if you like, but uh, in Matthew chapter 4, one of Jesus' temptations happened on a mountain. Then in chapters 5 to 7, we had the Sermon on the Mount. Then in chapter 14, what happened on a mountain there? Jesus was gloriously kind of transformed, transfigured up on the mountain. And then in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus gave his final kind of block of teaching on the Mount of Olives. And here we have Jesus right at the end of the gospel meeting his disciples again on a mountain. Why? Because this is a moment of immense spiritual significance. As God's plan to bring salvation to the world that really began back in Genesis 3, but particularly in Genesis 12, when he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that one day every nation can be blessed through you. That plan is about to enter a completely new stage. 
as God's people are sent out to the nations to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, So this meeting happens on a mountain because it's a moment of immense spiritual significance. And when Jesus' disciples see Jesus, notice that they worship him. We shouldn't miss that. It's actually another key piece of evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Uh, When I studied at university, I did an arts degree, and I studied a guy named Thomas Kuhn. Uh, You can Google him later on. It's Kuhn, K-U-H-N. Not like the cheese in Australia, although I think they've recently changed their name. Uh, But K-U-H-N. Uh, And Thomas Kuhn was particularly interested in exploring how cultural and scientific and philosophical changes happened over time. His observation was that that usually there's an existing paradigm, a kind of existing way of thinking about things in whichever field it's in. Uh, Everyone kind of accepts the existing paradigm. Uh, And then typically someone comes along who's a real outlier, right? They're saying all sorts of radical things. Most people think they're a bit of a crackpot, you know, they they reject everything that they say. Uh, But over time, some people in the dominant paradigm think, hey, this, this person's onto something. So over time, a new paradigm emerges, a new way of seeing things, of thinking about things. Uh, But Kuhn kind of said that that this kind of paradigm shift happens typically over 40 or 50 years. It happens really slowly, which is interesting. You're probably like, well, why are you talking about Thomas Kuhn? Well, if you come back to Matthew 28, what we've got is a group of Jewish people Uh, for whom they would have been the last people on earth open to the idea that a human being could be God. The last people on earth who would think that it was appropriate to worship a human being. And yet here we have a group of Jewish disciples almost immediately worshipping Jesus. The Jewish people had a particular way of thinking about God, a particular paradigm, you see. They believed that there was one true and living God, and to worship anyone or anything else was just plain idolatry. You see that all through the Old Testament. And yet here, these Jewish disciples of Jesus are bowing their knees and worshipping Jesus. Why is that? Well, I think the most logical explanation is that they saw Jesus raised from the dead and almost immediately, not 40 or 50 years, but straight away, it shattered their existing way of thinking about God. They knew that Jesus really was, Matthew 1, 23, remember where Matthew started, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is worthy of this worship. So the disciples, most of them fall down and worship Jesus, but not all of them. You notice how how honest the gospel accounts are? Another evidence for their reliability, right? Not trying to kind of sugarcoat things, cover things up. Matthew clearly says, but some of the disciples doubted. And we see in other gospels that doubt is a really quite common response to Jesus' resurrection. Here we are, the uh, disciples on the Emmaus Road doubt. Mary doubts at, at the tomb in John's gospel. Uh, the disciples who were fishing and Jesus appears to them, they're filled with doubt. By the, the, um, j- doubt is a really common response to Jesus' resurrection because as I said last Sunday, even in Jesus' day, dead people usually stayed dead. But it's not like resurrections were a dime a dozen. Oh, of course that person came back from the dead. You know, like people in Jesus' day had to be convinced of the resurrection, just like people today. Uh, But from John's Gospel, we do know that by this stage, Jesus has already appeared to his 11 apostles in the upper room. Maybe you remember that episode? 
Uh, So it seems pretty unlikely that it was Jesus' 11 apostles who doubted in this instance. But I think that probably the most likely explanation of who doubted is found back in verse 10. If you've got uh, Matthew 28 open, not just the, the passage for today, but a few verses back in verse 10... Jesus says to the women, uh, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. As you notice, Jesus uses the word brothers there, and if you scan back to verse 7, you'll see that the angel uses the word disciples in verse 7. So I think when we come down to, to verse 17, what's going on uh, is that Jesus' 11 apostles who's, who've already seen Jesus raised from the dead, they are absolutely ready to worship Jesus. They're convinced that he is the risen Lord. Uh, but some of Jesus' other followers, the, the broader brothers and sisters in Christ referenced in verse 10, some of them are still full of doubts. Right? This is their first time seeing Jesus. In fact, I think it's quite likely that this meeting with Jesus on the mountain is what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can read 1 Corinthians 15 later on. But Paul says there that at one time, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at one time. I think it's pretty likely that this is that appearance. Jesus appearing to all The brothers and sisters in Christ, as we've read in Matthew's Gospel, the brothers are those who've heard his word and put his word into practice. So what does this mean when it comes to the people of mission? I think there are two implications of this. Uh, The first implication uh, is that Jesus gives this commission to every single one of his disciples. That's that's important. Some people want to say, look, Jesus only commissioned his 11 apostles here. Uh, So today, it's really only the the, the Christian professionals who are obliged to follow this commission. It's the pastors, the church planners, the the paid evangelists, the people who work for the parachurch organization that's telling people about Jesus. They're the ones who are on about making disciples. The rest of us are off the hook. But that's not the case, is it? Jesus gives this commission to all his disciples, a broad, possibly up to 500 of his disciples. Which leads to the second implication, (coughs) excuse me, which leads to the second implication of these words, which is that we're to carry out this mission together. We're to be a people on mission, a community on mission. Sometimes when you think about telling someone about Jesus, uh, your frame of reference for that is always as a lone ranger evangelist. You know, it's me by myself, uh, and you just feel really isolated and alone. But I think in the Bible, the, the picture we've got is that we're to be a people on mission together, each one of us playing our part in this great mission of telling people about Jesus. Now, of course, each of us are going to have a different part to play in that mission. I'm not saying we're all exactly the same. Each of us have different personalities, different gifts, different experiences, different training. But to use the language of DPC's vision statement, all of us are called to play our part in someone else's story of finding deep satisfaction in knowing and serving Christ. All of us can play our part, right? All of, us can, all of us can pray for someone to come to know Jesus. It's a wonderful thing to come to know Jesus. Why wouldn't you pray that for someone? All of us can invite someone. All of us can be warm and welcoming to, to one another's family and friends. All of us can learn to tell our own story 
of finding satisfaction in knowing and serving Christ. Right? All of us are called to play our part in this great mission of making disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's the people of mission. We're in this together. We're here to support each other as we seek to make Jesus known. Right, what about the, the platform of mission, the kind of the launching pad of mission? Well, I think it's what Jesus says in verse 18. Take a look there. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we've seen this a fair bit, this, this idea that Jesus has all authority. There's really a, a key theme in Matthew's gospel. And we've seen a number of times that it takes us back to the prophet Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says there, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." Right, Matthew's saying that Jesus' resurrection declares once and for all that he is this son of man, right, the, the one who, who's been entrusted with an eternal kingdom, the one who's been given all authority, sovereign power over people of every nation. The Lord Jesus has all authority, right, not some authority or most authority, but all authority. I reckon we need to, to dwell on that a little bit. What does it mean for Jesus to have all authority? It means that when you look at the sky at night, you, you think Jesus has authority over every star and planet and galaxy. He has all authority. He has authority when you experience this, this weather. He's, Jesus has authority over the wind and the rain, the thunder and the lightning. He has authority over floods and fires, tsunamis. Jesus has authority over every plant and animal. Over every, even the tiniest things, every molecule and atom, Jesus has authority over. He has authority as you sit there in your seat and you feel your heart beating. Every heartbeat is under Jesus' authority. Every breath is under his authority. Jesus has authority over everything in the spiritual realm, over Satan, over every evil spirit, over demons, over angels. Jesus has all authority, you see. There's no nation that's outside of his authority, no government anywhere, no terrorist or army or weapon that is outside of Jesus' authority. He has all authority. Why, Jesus has all authority. Not one person or thing or event or circumstance. He is outside the sovereign control of Jesus. Now, maybe you think I'm laboring this a bit, but it's actually really important because I don't think you'll really get started with talking to someone about Jesus or go very far with talking to someone about Jesus if you're not deeply convinced of this. Right? Why bother telling people of every nation to bow their knee and confess that Jesus is Lord if Jesus isn't actually Lord of every nation? Why bother doing it? If Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and Sikhism, if they're all just the same, if Jesus is only Lord over Western countries that have Christianity, then why bother with mission, you see? But if Jesus is Lord over every nation, if he really does have all authority, then it makes complete sense to call people from every nation to bow their knee before him. 
And even if you think about it on a, on a more personal level, you remember a few days before this, Jesus was being arrested and tried and, and crucified, and, and his disciples were all over the place, deserting Jesus. And yet after this encounter with Jesus, the disciples are completely transformed. You know, think about Peter. Peter, who was passionately denying Jesus, becomes someone who's passionately declaring Jesus, right? standing before the very same Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 4, who condemned Jesus to death, saying salvation is found in no one else apart from Jesus. What was the key to that transformation? Well, of course, the coming of the Spirit. But the Spirit coming, giving them this deep conviction that Jesus is Lord. Jesus really is the one with all authority. And now every person on the planet ought to bow their knee before Jesus. Right, this is the platform of mission, the launching pad of mission, uh, that the Lord Jesus has all authority. Oh, what about the purpose of mission? Take a look in verses 19 and 20. This is the purpose of mission. Therefore, Jesus says, right, because I have all authority, it makes sense to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, right? This is the purpose of mission. This is uh, the central reason of why Christ sends his people into the world. Uh, the key idea is really to make disciples, right? That's the main command in this section. And we've seen in Matthew's gospel that to make disciples isn't just to, I don't know, invite someone to a course or give them to pray a prayer or tick a box. Or Jesus' idea of discipleship is a bit more intense than that. Jesus' idea of discipleship is to persuade people that the blessings of knowing him and being a part of his kingdom are so wonderful, are so good, uh, that you would be prepared to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Right? That's a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus says that if we're going to give ourselves to this mission of making disciples of all nations, we have to do three things. Right? First, we must go. Oh, we must go across the room, across the office, across the street, across the neighbourhood, the city, the nation, the world. We must go to wherever there are people who don't currently confess that Jesus is Lord. We must go. A second, when we go and people become disciples, Jesus says we must baptise them. Oh, which really implies two things. Right, first, this idea of baptism implies the need for, uh, for repentance, faith, and forgiveness. It's kind of like a three-part thing. Like in Acts chapter 2, for example, some people ask the Apostle Peter, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and believe. Oh, actually, no, he doesn't say repent and believe. He says, repent and be baptised. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, he's not saying you don't have to believe. He's just saying that, that baptism is connected to belief. Oh, the, the, the water baptism, in Peter's mind, is the outward physical sign of an inward spiritual reality. Oh, the reality, in this instance, that someone has turned away from their old life, where they were in control, where they were Lord... Right, they've put their faith in Christ and through faith in him, they've been forgiven for that life where they were rejecting Jesus and they've turned towards a new life where Jesus is in control, where Jesus is Lord. Right, it's repentance and faith and forgiveness. Baptism implies all of that. 
Our baptism also implies a need for the church. Right, baptism does have a, a vertical kind of dimension. Right, it's publicly identifying someone with, with the triune God, the Christian God, which is why when I baptised Owen before, I didn't baptise him in the name of Krishna or, or, or some other God, you know. I baptised him in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's saying that this guy is, is being identified with the triune God, the Christian God. There's a vertical dimension to baptism, but there's also a horizontal dimension because you're identifying someone as being a part of the triune God's people. I've been connected with the people of God. And so Jesus' commission here is about planting and establishing churches. It's the same with the directive to teach. How is it that a disciple of Jesus is going to be taught to obey everything Jesus commanded? Well, it's going to happen by spending a lifetime in the church. That's where that kind of ongoing teaching happens. It's important to remember that this mission that Jesus calls us to isn't just about saving isolated individuals. It's actually about planting and establishing churches. And Jesus says we're to carry out this mission of making disciples and planting churches among people of every nation. Uh, You you might have heard before that word nation isn't so much kind of political nation states, it's people groups, uh, kind of delineated groups of people. So if we think about our mission here in Melbourne, what does that mean? It means that having uh, planted and kind of mostly established a church here in Thornbury, we mustn't think that the mission's completed. We mustn't think that the job's done. The reality is there's at least 5 million people living in Melbourne and optimistically 3% of those people are Christians. 3% of 5 million. You, you can do the maths. It's not many. Now, the mission continues. Right? My, my hope and my prayer for DPC uh, is that we would grow to such a size that we'd make more and more disciples of Christ by God's grace uh, such that we could become a church that is able to regularly plant and establish new churches on a regular basis. That, that's the hope in obedience to this commission from our Lord Jesus. Jesus has authority over every people group. So the purpose of mission is to proclaim Christ, to make disciples, to plant and establish churches among people of every people group. It's a massive mission. So we've got to hold on to that promise of mission that Ariel was referencing earlier. Look in verse 20. Jesus says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You notice that the all's there, right? The same Lord Jesus who has all authority promises to be always with us. I mean, it's a great, a great encouragement. It's not, I mean, it's one thing if I said, hey, I promise to always be with you, but I don't have all authority, right? But the one who has all authority promises to be always with us. And we certainly need the Lord Jesus to be with us uh, for all sorts of reasons, but Uh, maybe in particular in this context of mission, because without him with us, constantly empowering us to engage with mission, it won't be long before we get comfortable and complacent and lose sight of our mission. 
It won't be long before we turn our church that uh, is really supposed to be more like a lifeboat. You know, some of you have heard this before. It's supposed to be more like a lifeboat, kind of commissioned by Jesus to save as many people as possible. But instead, we, we turn the church into a cruise ship over time in subtle ways so that the main aim of church is to make it as comfortable and safe and secure for me and for my friends and my family. It's very easy for that to happen. I'm preaching just as much to me as I am to you. It's so, uh, it's so easy to lose focus on our mission. So what's the power to keep engaging with mission, to keep focused on mission? It's clear that that power isn't going to come from in ourselves. You know, our culture says, uh, just look deep inside yourself and you can do anything. Well, we can't. We need to look outside ourselves to Jesus. We've got to spend less time looking at ourselves and our own insecurities and weaknesses and doubts and more time looking at Jesus. Looking at Jesus, the ultimate missionary. Looking at Jesus, and you see the one who didn't just go across a room or a street or a nation, but went from heaven to earth to save you. Because he knew that the only way he could save you was if he gave his life on the cross for you, as we heard on Good Friday. And if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, as we sang earlier, you won't just be empowered, to, to compelled uh, to keep engaging in mission. You'll actually, we as a church, will engage in mission a whole lot more effectively. If you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and you remember that he had to die for you on the cross, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and killed, Jesus says. If you remember that he had to die for you on the cross, what does that mean? It tears out of your life any sense of pride or arrogance or superiority or smugness, the sort of things that that people who aren't Christians hate about the church, and it actually makes you, turns you into someone, it turns us into a church that shares the gospel with gentleness and humility and respect. Incredibly attractive. A a church that's transformed by this reality that Christ had to die for us, Uh, but also a church we hope that, that it's transformed by the reality that Christ was willing to die for us, that he willingly laid down his life on the cross for us. Not just because he had to, but because he wanted to. And when you know that the one who had all authority loves you and accepts you unconditionally, what does that do for your evangelism, for the sharing of your faith? It liberates you. It gives you boldness and conviction and confidence. Because if you know that you're unconditionally loved and accepted by the one who has all authority, then you just don't care so much what that other person thinks, what your work colleague thinks, or your family think or your friend or your neighbor thinks, right? Because the verdict that matters most to you is the one of the risen Lord Jesus. So you're liberated to be bold and confident in your evangelism, right? If we want the power to keep proclaiming Christ and making disciples and planning and establishing churches with this unique mix of humility and boldness, in the end, we've got to spend less time looking at ourselves and more time looking at Christ, looking at Christ, the ultimate missionary, are the one who was sent that we might be saved, so that we who are saved might be sent. Uh, Let me pray. Our gracious Father, we we do thank you for this, uh, your word, and we pray that our ears, our hearts, our minds would be attentive to the words of our risen Lord Jesus I think we'll hear his uh, command, his call on our life as an individual, but also as a church. 
and that we would keep uh, pressing on in this mission that he calls us to. Uh, that many would be, become disciples of his. In his name we pray. Amen.